0: Welcome to Broadview this morning, to those who are visiting or haven't, we haven't seen for a little while, welcome, um, congrats on getting here on this cold day, it's a real turnout for a long weekend and a wintry day and saving daylight with us, thank you for that. I remember when I was a kid, before we had phones and stuff, okay, that family that kind of forgot daylight savings was on would stumble in at the end of the service, I think phones kind of prevent that now but it was fun. So, um, we've been having a look at the book of 1 Samuel. Um, It's been a pretty long ride, so well done for hanging in there. Uh, We've got a couple more weeks left after today. So, for those of you who are secretly not enjoying it that much, that's some good news. Um, So, last week, Reuben took us through the iconic story of David and Goliath, for those of you who are here. Obviously, David kills Goliath. Um, It's a pretty full-on story, which results in a decapitation. Uh, So, David, this young nobody begins to win the hearts of the people of Israel by defeating the bully that's been taunting them. It's actually a pretty good story to teach kids, I reckon. Uh, if there's a bully at school, kill them, decapitate them, and your classmates will celebrate you. I, I hope my sarcasm was obvious and apparent there. Apparently, it's not always. Um, but it is a story that's taught to kids a lot, and it's pretty weird, because it's kind of taught like, oh, yeah, he decapitated him. Um we don't even like kids playing violent video games, so it's, it's very odd to me. Anyway, uh, today's passage follows on directly from that story. There's plenty more weird stuff in this section too, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, and I know what you're all thinking, Michael, just leave the weird stuff alone. Um, do you think the guy who talked about golden groin tumours last time is going to leave the weird stuff? Sorry. We've got to embrace the weirdness of these stories, I think, because it becomes really easy to just read them really familiar, familiarly and uh, and not really wrestle with what's in the stories. So, that's what we're going to do. So, let's push on. Um, as some of you may or may not know, uh, Kim Myfe and I lived in Uganda for many years, and um, uh, during the 2010s uh, up to about 2018, and when we lived there, um, we talked with people, <laughs> surprisingly, um, and... One of the things that was really interesting was that in Uganda, the kind of celebrities were politicians. Um, There were musicians and other people, but really the politicians were the celebrities and people used to talk about them all the time and they would know, oh, this person's the minister for health and this person's the minister for finance and it was just kind of general knowledge and obviously the president was kind of uh, right on top of all that and so naturally people would ask us, what about the leaders in Australia? Who are your leaders? And I, I don't know if uh, most of you should be able to remember, back to the 2010s, but it was a slightly tumultuous time in Australia's political history and it was a bit awkward because every other week we seemed to be saying, well, this was our leader, uh, but this is the new one. Um, Uganda's had the same president since 1986, so people couldn't really uh, uh, find any familiarity with this. Um, speaking of African leaders, I recently finished uh, reading a really excellent book called Dictator Land. And Dictatorland essentially documents uh, the handover from the colonial era into the post-colonial era and as these African states were starting to get their own leaders and, um, and start to, to self-govern, which was a really exciting time, but it was also a really disappointing time because so much of the rhetoric leading up to this period was that uh, all these things that had happened under the colonialists, all this exploitation and seeking for wealth, that these new African leaders would then return all the wealth to the people and build up their countries. And um, any of you who've done some of that reading will know that that's not how it happened, that these leaders tended to replicate exactly what had been done by these colonial powers. And what they often did, these these, um, presidents and these people in power, as they became more worried about other people potentially creeping in and encroaching on their territory, they would bring these people close, monitor them, arrest them and have them exiled or killed, um, this is obviously not something unique to Africa, but um, wealth and power are very seductive. So with that said, uh, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 18 today, and hopefully I was late because of daylight savings, but uh, hopefully we've got some stuff on the screen to help you read through. Otherwise, feel free to grab a hard copy. So starting from verse 5, whatever mission Samuel sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, meaning Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? Spoiler alert. Uh, and from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. So we see here in this passage the beginning of a transition. Of course, from our historical viewpoint, we already know that David will be the next king. These are the, there are these strange lag periods in this book for both Saul and David between actually being anointed and then, or chosen as the king and then actually taking up that position. And although Saul probably doesn't know that David has been chosen as his successor, he obviously feels the threat of this eventuality as with the African leaders I mentioned earlier, likewise Saul brings David close to him, inviting him into his household to keep a close eye on the one that he feels threatened by. This, uh, the passage goes on from here into verse 10 and onwards and um, tells us that Saul's envy and suspicion reach a tipping point and that David is playing the lyre or the harp. Saul throws a spear at him in an attempt to pin him to the wall. David dodges the spear twice Uh, Now some of you know and would have noticed I've got three young boys and as you can imagine there's lots of wrestling and things that happen in our house. There is the occasional projectile that's aimed at each other. They're not great throws so they don't often connect Um, but Kim and I solidly draw the line at javelins. We do not allow javelin throwing in the house even if it's just in the hope of pinning your brother down. Of course, kings did, uh, could and did get away with this kind of behaviour, but it reveals to us the level of distress that Saul is experienced, experiencing by this successful rising young star. So we continue on from verse 17. Saul said to David, Here is my oldest daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, who am I and what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahola. Now Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. Oh, give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, do you think it is small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told, told him what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. This is real. Um, Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, in marriage. Speaking of weird, here we are. I still remember the winter's night that I visited Kim's parents to ask for their blessing to ask Kim to marry me. They were kind and excited and gracious, and certainly there was no talk of a fee involved. Uh, But when we lived in Uganda, it was customary for young men to pay a dowry or a bride price to the father of the bride. Traditionally, this figure was calculated in cows, with each family's status taken into account in negotiating this figure. Certainly, a princess would demand a very elaborate dowry, beyond the reach of most men. David's conscious of his lowly status and his financial limitations. To marry into royalty is a big deal. Ask Kate and Megan. I, I think that's the names of the princess people. Having said all this, a price is finally set in four skins... My Bible commentary mentions the usual process of a bride price and David's inability to pay and simply notes, however, the price appears to have been set by the father and thus Saul attached the bride price to the military prowess of the husband-to-be rather than to financial resources. It was not unusual in the ancient Near East for casualty counts to be kept by cutting off some body part, usually hands or heads. The request for foreskins would have proven that the victims were Philistines, because many of the other neighbours of Israel would have practised circumcision. Okay, that makes perfect sense then. Not weird at all. We see here Saul trying to use his own daughter to essentially put David off his game. In this episode, we see David at his best, playing music to calm Saul, refusing to accept elevation to a position he did not merit. David here exercises his servant heart to faithfully serve Saul in the face of animosity and physical danger. So, what were the results, uh, initial results of this marriage built on suspicion and military prowess? Let's read the last verses of the chapter. When Saul realised that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle and as often as they did... David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers and his name became well known. So, this seems to have been quite a backfire here on Saul's behalf. Thrusting David into battle only garnered him greater success and his marriage to Michael brings love and support. Saul's plans to undermine David fail and, uh, and uh, and instead lift David up, moving him closer to his royal calling. It is interesting to note here that Saul is described as fearful of David rather than angry. He remained an enemy of David the rest of his life, enduring the bitterness, suspicion and fixation that comes with holding such animosity. So, I'd like to raise three aspects that kind of occurred to me as I was reading through this passage. The first point that I think is really important to acknowledge when reading these stories is that they describe real people. If you were here for my previous sermon on Samuel, 1 Samuel 4-7, to you might remember me talking about how we often have how we have often falsely elevated characters from Scripture into the role of almost demigods. We've heard these stories so often that our reflection upon them can become superficial. Like comic books or Marvel movies, we look for the good guys and the bad guys, the black and the white, clear cut. We make people into caricatures that make digesting difficult texts like these a little more comfortable. I was speaking with Andrew about this recently and we were highlighting how Saul is generally seen as the bad guy, not just in this story but across the whole book of Samuel. Conversely, we see David as the archetypal good guy, following God, winning battles, taking the high ground against an angry Saul. If only it was so simple. As we've already read in Samuel, Saul was chosen by God and does some really good things. He makes mistakes along the way... And as we begin to see today, his departure from the throne is far from gracious. In short, he is a human who wrestles with his humanity. We feel an investment into David being good, or certainly that's how I feel. He is a man after God's own heart, and Jesus comes from his very family line. We can tend to overlook or minimise his errors, calling them errors, rather than the horrendous evil that they are, murder, adultery, pride and greed. But he sought forgiveness for them, we say, David, for all the good he did, is a human wrestling with his humanity. Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who experienced and observed some of the worst of the brutal Russian communist state and its gulags could throw at people, wisely wrote, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? For the second key point in this this text, I'm going to lean heavily on on an excellent book written by a Catholic priest called Ronald Rollheiser by the name of Sacred Fire. This book is focused on becoming a mature disciple of Jesus. In an early section of the book, Rollheiser documents a list of sins or faults that commonly appear during our adult years as we grow up. He identifies pride along with envy or jealousy at the very top of that list. Roel Heisler writes, "...pride in the mature person takes the form of refusing to be small before God and, rec- and refusing to recognise properly our interconnection with others, namely to recognise that we are standing before God and others with empty hands and that all we have achieved has come our way by grace more so than our own efforts." Envy, meanwhile, manifests itself in, the, in mature adults in the form of feeling threatened, however subtly, by the talents, achievements, and beauty of others. Pointedly, Rollheiser probes, Why do I struggle to bless younger people? When did I last truly praise a younger person? And herein lies the undoing of Saul, detailed in this passage. Saul, in pride and envy, is undone by David's popularity and achievements. Rather than acting as a gracious mentor, assisting David to take on the demanding role of king, Saul rages against this, choosing to throw spears rather than bless. He sends David out to lead armies in the hope that he may be killed and even has him marry his daughter in the hope that family life may distract David enough to cloud his decision-making on the battlefield. Saul has a choice here to bless David, to train him and build him up, or he has the choice to curse him, to drag him down. Rolheiser points out that to bless another fully is to give away some of one's own life so that another might be more resourced for his or her journey. And part of that is dying. We must die so that the other might live. To fully bless someone is to give up some life for that person, to die for him or her in some real way. Saul here has the opportunity to bless David as he grows into his God-ordained role as king but this will cost Saul. By lifting up David, he must correspondingly lower himself down. This process can be very painful. As T.S. Eliot put it, it costs not less than everything, but it is beautiful and powerful. Rather than being threatened and frustrated by youth and energy, Saul could have chosen to give something of himself away to resource David. And so indeed, we have the same set of choices. As we become older and are afforded more seniority in work settings, committees, family circles, we too are given the opportunity to bless or curse those younger than us. We can resource them for their journey or toss spears their way. I simply cannot put it any better than Rollheiser. But this is what it means to act like God. We need to offer our lives for another, particularly for the young, particularly when the cost is high and particularly too when the other might not even know what you are doing for him or her and might not be grateful for it. The air we breathe out into the universe is the air we re-inhale. When we bless the young, especially when it seems that they do not want our blessing, we lift a congenital constriction off their hearts. And when we do that, we also lift a huge depression from our own hearts because when we act like God, we get to feel like God before you come and yell at me for being heretical, I think what he means here is that we get to feel some of what God feels. The third and final point I want to highlight in that is that in contrast to Saul's desire to lord his power over David, David chooses to make himself a servant. Despite his anointing by Samuel and his very public victories, David chooses to make himself subservient to Saul. He continues to respect and honour Saul even when Saul's behaviour is hardly deserving of it. It is no coincidence that Jesus, the suffering servant, comes from the line of David. Throughout the Old Testament, we are introduced to individuals that, though far from perfect, offer pointers towards a future human who would be perfect. David, with all his flaws and failings, is certainly one of these individuals. And throughout Saul's life, David serves and respects him. Richard Foster notes, In the discipline of service, there is great liberty. Service enables us to say no to the world's games of promotion and authority. The difference highlighted through this passage between David and Saul, both chosen by God and both anointed by Samuel, is that David does not grasp for power and authority. By choosing to serve, David puts himself at great risk, both physically and professionally he gives Saul an opportunity not just to prevent his advancement but to kill him likewise jesus not only bent down to wash his disciples' feet but laid down his life in service i'm reminded of the word uh, reminded of paul's words to the philippians do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather in humility value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interests of others In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who in being very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Similarly to David, we are called not to pursue pleasure or to self-promote, but to serve. Foster again says, our Lord's unique service of redemption through the cross is unrepeatable. However, we are called to serve through the many little deaths of going beyond self. And as as we live our lives for the good of others, amazingly, we find ourselves, we discover our sense of place. This chapter from the book of Samuel illustrates powerfully the effects our choice to bless or curse others can have. Despite David's endurance through this episode, and this goes on for a few more chapters, these events had lasting effects on him. We sense that these wounds deeply shaped him and influenced his character and behaviours later in life. David runs into conflict with his own sons and his transition of power to his son Solomon is anything but smooth. David, after his affair with Bathsheba, sends her husband Uriah out into the heart of battle, much as Saul had done to him. We can only speculate what David's era as king would have looked like had Saul chosen instead to bless him. And likewise, we are challenged to bless others, particularly those younger than us, to bless them with our time and our concentration. But more than that, we must be prepared to give away some of our life to resource theirs. We are called to be servants, We are children of the suffering servant and no servant is greater than their master. Let me finish with a story about two African leaders with contrasting styles. Paul Kagame became president of Rwanda in 1994 following the horrific genocide that shocked the world in 1993. Kagame was head of the army and after being de facto head of state was finally promoted officially to president in the year 2000 after the incumbent had resigned. Kagame had a new constitution drafted that established a maximum of two seven-year periods uh, or terms for each president, after which the president would stand aside. Kagame, aside from eradicating corruption within the civil service and setting the country on a path to outstanding growth, at one time the fastest in Africa, also sought to heal the deep wounds left by the war and genocide Both survivors and perpetrators were encouraged to share their stories to enable forgiveness and healing so that the country could reunite and move forward. Despite being a firm and at times oppressive leader, Kagame promised he would observe the term limits and stand aside when his second term expired. Unfortunately, as this time approached, Kagame noted that there was no one qualified to take his place and suggested that the constitution be changed to eliminate term limits. In a nationwide referendum, 98% of Rwandans voted to support this change. Now in Rwanda, dissent is responded to vigorously and opponents are few and far between. The lure of power has been too much for Kagame, who has not been able to say no to promotion or authority and has failed to bless the young people around him. Nelson Mandela emerged from 27 years in prison, seemingly destined to become president of South Africa. White South Africans and others who had benefited from the inhuman apartheid system quaked in fear at the revenge he and his party, the African National Congress, was going to exact from them. Instead, when Mandela did take up leadership, he instituted the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where victims of extreme injustice were able to share their stories. Equally, perpetrators could provide testimony and ask for amnesty. This is, in fact, where Kagame got his idea from. Powerfully, Mandela publicly offered forgiveness to his jailers and others who had wronged him, setting the nation on a path to healing. Mandela sought to govern a country where all people, regardless regardless of race, were valued. When his four-year term in office expired, he graciously stepped aside to allow his younger colleagues to take over. We all have choices to bless others or to curse them. To follow the example of Jesus and become servants, freely giving of ourselves to others, or to strive for power and authority at the expense of others. One way ushers in life in the kingdom, the other way leads to destruction and death. Lord Jesus, may your kingdom come on this earth, as in heaven, and by your grace may we be agents of this transformation. Amen